Welcome to Dr. Thoughts, a smart, driven, and fabulous podcast by Drs. Ryan LaValle and Kalia Johnson, where sometimes it's about occupation and sometimes it's just sassy. All right, what's up, everybody? It's your favorite auntie and your favorite um, late night ER buddy <laughs> back for <laughs> another episode of Dr. Thoughts. And so for all of my um, hip hop heads, I was actually talking to Ryan um, about this a little bit ago. Um, if you remember the Locks um, 1998 album, they had the song, you know, Money, Power, Respect. Uh, that feature DMX Lil Kim, um, I think it really highlights some of the, the things that we've been talking about recently in our conversations. And, you know, the song starts out, see, I believe in money, power, and respect. First, you get the money, then you get the MF and power. After you get the F and power, MFers will respect you. It's the key to life. But is it really the key to life? <laughs> you know, when you... <laughs> apply Lil Kim's logic to our healthcare system, you know, leveraging money, power, and respect um, is a, a privilege only afforded to, to a few. And so I think we'll, we'll get into that a little bit today. First though, I just want to say I was eight years old in 1998. Excuse me? <laughs> <laughs> How are you eight in 1998? That's that doesn't even Born sound 1990. Right. <laughs> Oh my God. I was in high school. Technically, no, I know 90s, I'm not. <laughs> wow. I know I'm not that much older than you. Eight in 1998. Yep. That sounds ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we want to talk about a little bit of the healthcare system and thinking about money, power, and respect, mostly because I just recently went to the ER. Um, uh, which was not a super great experience. It was my first time really being in an ER. Um, I stupidly um, mashed my thumb with a drill um, and broke my end of my thumb bone um, and punctured my thumbnail. So um, it was it was quite an interesting visit, but it gave us lots to talk about and lots to think about when it comes to our healthcare system. So. Um, Dr. Johnson and I thought we might just unpack a few um, aspects of that story today. Yes, I still cringe hearing that <laughs> that happened to you. Like I just, whoo, y'all. <laughs> yeah, it was it was not fun. So I mean, the first thing I we were putting an arbor together because yes, we are gardeners, earth gaze all the way, um, and we we were putting two trees together essentially and I I was stupid with a screw and then the drill ended up going through my thumb um but my first thought as my thumb was bleeding onto the ground was that I was gonna have to pay a shit ton of money for this visit I was like oh my god do I even need to go to the hospital should I just try and figure this out here like I'm sort of a healthcare professional right (laughs) like so (laughs) can't I figure this out here um and that was it just really brought to me like wow that's that's really unfortunate that's the first thought in my head um ended up talking to a nurse through UNC's health line or whatever um they told me to go to urgent care went to urgent care 
Um, the doctor there said they didn't have an x-ray machine um, and so was fairly defensive though. She was like ready for me to fight her on whether I could mm. get care at urgent care or not. Um, mm -hmm. And then started using lots of big words to essentially to scare me to go into the ER like osteomyelitis, which is just bone infection. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so then I went to the ER because they had an x-ray machine, um, actually got into, I saw a nurse triage pretty quickly, got an x-ray, um, and then was taken back to a bed. And the ED doctor actually was pretty quick, no nonsense, pretty direct, um, but then didn't really let me know after like they did the initial examination and undressed the wound, what was happening next. Um, and so I ended up sitting and waiting for about three hours, just not knowing what was going on in the ER, just in the bed, sort of just like watching people walk by me, staring them down, trying to get them to pay attention to me. Um, wow. My partner was there with me, luckily. Um, halfway through, he decided this was at like at this point, like 9 p.m. He needed to go feed our dog and needed to take a shower. So he went home. Um, and I was there just waiting. Um, and ultimately, like the nurse came in, gave me some medicine that apparently I was supposed to take and then just walked away, didn't tell me next steps or anything. Um, mm -hmm. And just sort of sat there waiting. Um, and in my waiting, I saw two interesting situations happen. Uh, one was a Spanish speaking family came in um, and it, they, they asked for someone who spoke Spanish. They needed to get an interpreter. They got like an electronic phone version of an interpreter um, after a while of waiting. Um, and so that was sort of the initial um, evaluation. But then when they um, came back, um, the, the nurse just didn't, it didn't seem like she had the time or the interest in getting that interpreter again. So just essentially spoke really bad Spanish to this family. And and really connected um, in, in not the best way ling linguistically. Um, wow. And so I was just sitting there watching all this happen as I waited, not know what was going on. Um, and then I, I also saw another um, patient who I think had been brought in via confusion and the EMS just said she was asking for help, but she'd been in the ED for a while apparently. And she started yelling and asking why she couldn't leave. And the mm -hmm. nurses and everyone were just telling her to get back in bed and trying to explain to her. And she was getting really scared and was asking for the police and trying to get out of bed and running out. And like the nurses just uh, essentially were blocking her and telling her to get back in bed and like, but just saying, get back in bed and then just walking away. Um, and then they brought someone to sit next to her, but that person was fully not prepared to deal with that situation. Um, and finally, about five hours in, I was able to, to see someone um, and they removed my nail and did all the sutures and everything. And, but the doctor was so rushed and was just like ready to go to the next thing. She was getting beeped to go to the next thing. Um, and it was just crazy to, to have to manage all of that. And at the same time, realize that I was having to navigate so much for myself and to try and mm -hmm. just get information out of the healthcare system. It was just crazy. So lots to unpack in that story. Um, and, yeah. but it was my first time in the ER and actually really one of my first times truly being a patient as an adult. Um, so it was a lot to think about for me. Yeah. 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 Your story, like you, like you said, it touches on so much, right? The, the money, 
um, dynamics between physicians and patients, the t- all the waiting that happens, right? There's always hurry up and wait um, and just sort of the lack of information and transition um, in that process and just all of the other things that you observe with folks from different cultural backgrounds and linguistic differences and, you know, levels of understanding and just, just all that. Like you could seriously do uh, an ethnography on, on that. Right. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, let's, let's, let's go back to the money part. Right. Cause you know, it's not like we, we are insured people, mm-hmm. you know, but still carry a lot of concerns about paying for healthcare, especially um, emergency department visits. You know, it's, it's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. Well, and it just prevents you from like getting care that you might benefit from. Like, I don't want to go to an ER if I don't need to go to an ER, but I don't know sometimes because I'm not that sort of professional. I'm not a doctor um, in the MD sense. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, you know, so I think it just, it's such a, a, a barrier for a lot of people because I mean, at the end of this visit, I had, I paid $500 outright as a, as a deductible and then still waiting on bills to come in. Mm-hmm. So I don't know ultimately what the full amount will be, but to, to be someone who doesn't have resources available to pay that or has to start thinking about managing a, a, a bill is just keeping me from going to the hospital or keeping me from right. getting checked on and e- even if it isn't something super emergent right have you had any experiences in the ER or having to deal with sort of the cost of it all yeah yeah um I guess about it was a little over a year ago um just had this terrific headache like the kind that wakes you up out of your sleep and you know you don't really think much about a headache right but this has been this was the worst headache of my life um and you know checked my blood pressure it was definitely elevated um and you know I'm thinking worst case scenario like I'm gonna lay down try to go back to sleep and have a stroke you know like that that's what I was thinking (laughs) and so uh figured because I, I do have um, a history of hypertension that it would probably be best for me to be checked out, right? Um, and went to the ER. This was somewhere between like 12 and, and two. It was, it was early um, in the morning. And, you know, I was essentially seen for two minutes, which really felt like two seconds by a neurologist. I did have to wait a little bit. It was, you know, a little, about an hour and a half wait. Um, but they gave me like a Benadryl cocktail and water and it cost me $1,800. Wow. (laughs) Yes. Yes. $1,800. And I could have just gone to Walgreens and picked up a box of Benadryl. Right. But of course, you know, I'm thinking about my own health history um, and being concerned about, you know, what might or might not happen to me over um, in, in my sleep. But also the fact that here I am, somebody who's coming in with a pre-existing condition, I describe this as the worst headache of my life and really didn't get a lot of time with a neurologist. Mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of like, oh, well, we don't have a reason to, you know, do any sorts of scans or anything. So we're going to just give you this Benadryl cocktail and some fluids, you know, check on you in a little bit and send you home. 
which is exactly what they did, but there was no sort of like discharge instructions. Like, well, you know, if you check your blood pressure in six hours and it's elevated again, you know, your headache is back, come back, nothing like that. So going home to figure out, all right, well, what, what do I do in case, um, but also like you wondering what are the bills going to look like when they come, mm-hmm. you know, and whether you're insured or not, you know, this kind of stuff is not stuff I budget for, Yeah, <laughs> you know, so having this extra bill, a significant bill at that, um, gives you pause to say the least. Yeah. Well, yeah. and I mean, it's just going back to that, you know, just two seconds with a doctor, like, I understand that it's, it's our system in a lot of ways. Like when the doctor came to see me to actually do the actual, I guess, procedure, I won't call it surgery because that feels too intense. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the procedure to my thumb is she was like, like rushed and, and like feeling like I was like anxious because she was anxious. And I was just like, I know that this is not your fault that I've had to wait this long. I also know that this is really not your fault that you're being pulled in like six different directions right now because you're Mm -hmm. the only person apparently who can do like three different surgeries that are happening but like that's the system that's what was so frustrating about it is that like our system is built only on efficiency of like why isn't there like an urgent care side of the er or something where like there's another staff member. I just feel like our system is understaffed. They're overworked and they are dealing with so many different stressors in those spaces that it makes it hard for people to actually even connect with the patient in a way that's more than just like, let me solve your problem as soon as I can, (laughs) as quickly as possible. Um, Mm -hmm. But there's, I mean, there's so much more to care than just, you know, stitching a wound um yeah but our system doesn't allow for it and I don't think it's the fault a lot of those nurses and and people but I mean it was a little bit of the fault of the nurse that I dealt with like he was like just super chill as (laughs) (laughs) he was just like meandering around sometimes and just sort of walked and was like so what's going on he like pulled the chair up and sat like on it backwards like a bro and I was like this is not a moment that I need from you sir like (laughs) he was like so y'all are about to become friends yeah I was like no I don't I don't need that but then he wasn't like helpful in the information he was more of like we were like do you have any idea how long this is going to take? And he was like, we just can't answer that question here. And I'm like, that's cool. I understand that. But also like, what are the next steps? Don't just give me medicine and walk away because you're just like chill. Um, right. It was just right. like, it didn't, there was no like care. It was like, I'm going to do what I need to do. And, but I also, he may have been at the end of his like 12 hour shift dealing with patients in so many different ways. Um, and I, I don't know, it's just so frustrating how dehumanizing it can sometimes feel to sit in mm-hmm. that system. Yeah. Yeah. Just even listening to you, right. I'm thinking about, um, the system and even the, the, the language we end up using, right. Dealing with patients, dealing with doctors. It's like the same sorts of things they, they deal, <laughs> I'm saying it again, you know, deal with or have to manage, um, being on the patient side, like we're, we're coming into it already feeling like we're going to have to manage certain things as well, you know, and, and part of that is the, the history of our healthcare system and how people are treated. Um, but also just the, the managed care side of it. Right. And like you said, there's this value on 
efficiency and productivity versus the actual care. Um, and it's a, it's a culture that, that has us before we have it, right? And even when we are intentional and try to be conscious of what we're doing, we fall into the traps every single time. Yeah. Yeah. But, but dealing (laughs) with, with our, with our healthcare system in in all ways. I feel like this, we have to be defensive as patients, um, you know, because we're trying to save ourselves money. We're trying to make sure that we're not like double charged. We're trying to make sure we're getting the right medication and we know what's going on in our own care. But then that also is coming from the fact that half of the professionals that we engage with are super defensive because they're so used to like having Mm -hmm. to manage the system and move people through and like uh, not being trusted and always being questioned because we're so concerned that we're going to get something wrong or have to pay for something we didn't need or those sorts of things. So it just creates a whole tension between healthcare professional and patient. Um, Yeah that's not helpful mm-hmm. <laughs> at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not at all. So talk to us a little bit more about sort of your observations with um, this family that needed an interpreter. Yeah, so it, it's an interesting uh, situation. Uh, this is something I always am on the lookout for as someone who speaks Spanish, um, just in case like I can be of assistance um, in, in providing some sort of interpretation in lots of situations. I'm obviously like not, I'm not a certified like medical interpreter. And so I not want to also HIPAA is a thing. (laughs) So I can't (laughs) sort of just step into a medical situation like that. But um, it was, it's just always interesting to me. Like when I was in field work um, in OT, there were times when interpreters just wouldn't show up um, to the sessions of therapy. Mm. And I, as a field work student would sort of have to just step in and try my best to interpret, which is not super ethical, um, but it was like the client needed therapy and I was there. Um, And so, you know, to a certain extent, it's just frustrating how difficult it is to access um, language accessible care in a lot of situations. And now we have so much technology that it is just a phone call. You know, you don't have to go wait for a human being to show up. Um, Mm -hmm. But especially with like, this nurse explaining medication, like she was trying to say that the person should not drink water with the medication. She should eat food, but she should not drink water, which I'm not sure what type of medication that was, but that's why I'm not. Yeah, a nurse. that's um, interesting. <laughs> but not again, she was trying to do it in shitty Spanish. So I don't know if that was maybe just me misunderstanding what she was trying to say, um, but I can only imagine what that person was trying to figure out and understand about this type of medication that she was giving mm-hmm. her. Um, but that's just like, if you don't have that capacity, you have to figure out how to have a, like a clear conversation. But based on our history as a country, we don't have policies that support um, inclusive linguistic care. Like in, in Guatemala, for example, they require um, all signs in a hospital to be in indigenous Guatemalan languages as well as Spanish, you know? And so we don't mm. have policies that require our healthcare professionals to, or at least maybe we do, and they're just not enforced as well as they should, um, to really provide that linguistic accessible care um, in a way that's helpful (laughs) to the patient. Yeah, you know, I mean, we think about sort of like, like you said, linguistic affirming care, but really just cultural affirming care all the way around mm-hmm. um because you know i mean at unc in our department right we're required to do some 
training around implicit bias and all these other things, but you know, where on the hospital side is that happening, if at all? Um, I am almost assuming that it's not considering what happened um, with this family, but also just thinking about what happens with other families from other cultural backgrounds and sort of, you know, historicizing care within, in Black and other um, communities of color. Um, yeah, and that, I mean, that linguistic um, sort of affirmative care is totally tied to racism in the U.S. and our history of like anti like English as an official language movements have historically been connected to anti-immigrant and anti-Latinx Latina community movements and so I don't know it's like again I'm not trying to blame the nurse in these instances but it's sort of the system in which she's working where she's being pressured to move quickly not waste the time to get an interpreter because she has other clients to take care of because they're understaffed um, but it's really connected to the assumption that someone who is not white who does not speak English doesn't deserve the additional effort that a system should put into to make an accessible care situation happen. Mm -hmm. But you know, but at what point though do we do we place accountability and responsibility on the care provider, right? Because when you know better, you do better. Um, yeah. So you know, was this a, a situation where she could um, make phone calls again? You know, may obviously it's, it is a an urgent issue um, because I can't imagine the same way that I reacted to you saying like take don't take medication with water like what. Um, <laughs> You know, the patient probably had the same, you know, sort of confusion and to, to go home with that confusion with new medication is negligent, in my opinion. Um, and so as the healthcare provider, did she do enough um, in that moment? Because you've essentially put someone's life in more danger because they didn't have adequate instruction um, so they could, could understand what it is that they're doing. Um, and I just just thinking about sort of language differences with people who don't use conventional language, right? Mm -hmm. um, or, or language at all. Um, you know, people who are institutionalized with intellectual and developmental disabilities, like some of the things I witnessed um, with their healthcare in those situations was appalling to me. It's like, you don't even, I didn't even really see attempts to connect with the, the staff in ways for the, the providers to even make really informed decisions about the kinds of care that they were giving mm -hmm. um, or even paying attention to, um, you know, nonverbal communication to understand whether what they were doing was um, painful and harmful to the patient. So just the treatment of their bodies uh, just, you know, dehumanized in a way because they couldn't communicate in conventional ways. It's just, it's, there, there's just so much room for improvement and growth and really how we provide care. And, you know, and even occupational therapy is not um, exempt from that either, right? I mean, I worked in a hospital system um, in a community that had a large Latinx population, right? And we only had one occupational therapist uh, who was fluent in Spanish. Um, shout out to Ismael Miranda from Puerto Rico. Um, and, you know, thank, thank God we had Ismail on our, on our staff because 
getting an interpreter was like me trying to grow a third leg. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it was so bad, so yeah. bad. But it's like, at least your staff should reflect the community you live in in some sort of way. Um, yeah, our physiatrists were couldn't speak Spanish. All of our nurses couldn't speak Spanish. You know, my Spanish is horrible. I definitely <laughs> wouldn't even attempt to try to do therapy in Spanish because it's like you just cause confusion. Right. You know? yeah. um, well, and it's it's hard for a lot of times people to push back, you know, especially um, if you aren't used to managing our healthcare system or not like you're already sort of feeling at a disadvantage, but there's also like potential of racism and sort of backlash against you if you're pushing for like, no, I deserve someone who speaks Spanish. This is the way I want to be treated. When mm -hmm. that nurse comes in super rushed and anxiety filled and like just trying to say bad Spanish to you, like to pause that person and say like, no, I'm not receiving this care through this language that you're giving me right now mm -hmm. and asking for, you need to get an interpreter and constantly having to make that request is is really challenging for a lot of people. And it requires a lot of energy and also just bravery in a lot of sense. And we don't make it easy. So oftentimes we as OTs or we as professionals have to be the advocates for them in those situations mm -hmm. um, if they're not feeling comfortable pushing back. But I mean, a lot of that, again, has to do with institutional racism in our healthcare system and the way that we understand what people's rights are um, yeah. when it comes to their their care mm -hmm. that's that is something else you know it's 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 so interesting to sort of reflect on the experiences on both sides of the system right as mm -hmm. as a service provider but also a service recipient um this you know this this touches on insurance but also costs again but i'm reminded of um the time my my father was getting treated for 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 bladder cancer and y'all this has been now 13 almost 14 years ago and so um anybody who has you know experienced cancer care with with family members knows that it is it is expensive um extremely expensive to to experience cancer and um I think the the eye opening moment for me um, was attending um, a meeting with them with the insurance rep at the hospital and um, them sort of talking about overall costs of care up until that point, but sort of like what the future management um, of that care might look like, and sort of hearing you know the numbers right hundreds of thousands of dollars because um, he I wouldn't say the the cancer was complicated but you know it's like you have procedures that you do and the, the treatment all the specialists you see and potential hospitalizations and whatnot um you know but at the at the time of his death in fact you know it, it was upwards of three hundred fifty thousand dollars in care that he had received but here here's the thing though so my, my dad was a, um, a commissioner in Georgia, um, also served on a couple, you know, regional boards for like the American Red Cross and stuff like that. What I didn't know at the time, well, un until this time, was that um, even state level, like commissioners, senators, rep representatives all have a form of the same sorts of insurance that people in D.C. get. 
right? You know, it's supplemental to whatever it is they already have, but this, this healthcare, this insurance is offered to them. Well, it picked up every penny of his care. Wow. Every penny. There were $0 paid for his entire cancer care. Now, why is it now, you know, of course we are thankful for that (laughs) because that's, you know, when, when you're planning for retirement, you don't sit aside, you know, a half a million dollars because you might have cancer or that sort of thing. Um, but it just goes to show you like really what is possible in this country as far as covering healthcare for people. Why is it that our dignitaries, so to speak, can have all of their healthcare provided for and everybody else scrambles to pay their deductibles, if anything at all? And, and then we fight, we fight about, you know, our universal health care when it's like, y'all been getting it. <laughs> Real talk. Yes. So, Absolutely. so what you, what you really mad at is you don't want us to have it. That's what it is. <laughs> it's like, oh, where, you know, this is socialism. Like MFers, y'all been on the socialism. <laughs> like, get out of here. It's well, so and, but then crazy. we, we we convince like everyone else that our health insurance companies are like these saviors. Like my mom also just recently went through the cancer experience and she was telling me like, after I went to the ER and was talking to her about this, you know, because I always try and turn my mom into a socialist. Um, But (laughs) I was saying like, you know, it was so frustrating that I had to think about how much money was my immediate thought. And she was like, you know, I was so thankful for the health insurance company because I only had to pay $7,000 this past year for my, my cancer care out of, you know, however much it was, which is great to a certain extent. Yeah. But the amount that our healthcare costs in the United States is so inflated because of health insurance companies. Mm-hmm. And then like, we're just telling people, oh, if you didn't have this health insurance, look at how much you'd have to pay when it shouldn't, it wouldn't cost that much if we didn't have the health insurance system in the first place. So it's just, we've convinced people that these health insurance companies are the heroes when in reality, the more sick people they have, the more money they make. And that's a problem for any sort of, I think, health system to be functioning off of that model. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't, it's just so frustrating to me to think about the fact that we have so many people benefiting from that universal care, that socialized medicine model, especially those in power. And then the people at the bottom are just sort of struggling and trying to decide whether to go to an ER or not because they know how much it's gonna cost to them when it could in fact save their life in the long run. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if there are any um, state senators and folks in Washington (laughs) who happen to listen to Dr. Thoughts. We'd like to hear your thoughts on this. Yeah, um, give us a call. You can call 911, get us universal healthcare. Exactly. <laughs> Don't call 911. That meant to be 1-800. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, or, or slide through my DM so we can really chat about yeah. this thing and keep it on 1,000. Yes, talk to Academic Dima on Instagram about your political decisions, please. That's right. That's right. Because <laughs> we're about that life. That's uh, right. <laughs> Why is occupational therapy political, Kali? <laughs> Listen, if people don't know, hopefully they'll know after this next ethics event. So yes, uh, with, with UNC. But yeah, yeah, it is 
you know, healthcare is inherently political in any institution. Um, and by institution, I mean, you know, occupational therapy and other um, health professions are tied to it, then your work too is inherently political, um, particularly in dealing with issues of power and access and utilization, but it's also part of sin because um, we can't, you know, pretend that political parties don't have um, a, a stake in what happens in um, our healthcare system because disease is profitable. Um, disability is, and, and you know, and I, I, and I don't want to get on a soapbox about this, but the whole like disability is profitable, profitable as well thing is, I don't know, there, there's, there's something about it that feels like an oxymoron, right? Mm. Because uh, people with disabilities are by and large left out of <laughs> the healthcare system um, too, and even affording their healthcare. Well, we already know that because they're essentially legislated in a way not to make money, that to even be able to provide care um, is, is highly problematic. But yeah, just the, the, the proliferation of poverty, right? Mm. And, and everything that is tied to healthcare and how we um, manage healthcare is, is something else. So it is transactional for all of those who follow the transactional <laughs> perspective of occupation. And it is also political. So yes. let's, let's not forget that. Yes. So we have talked about money and power. And so I have a question for you, Kalia. Mm -hmm. What have we learned in this conversation about respect? And as practitioners or as healthcare providers or patients, where, where does respect come in? And what should we do with these stories to change the way that we do our work? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I think that comes to mind immediately is sort of re re respecting people and in, in how they come to you, right? Meeting people where they are, putting those assumptions um, and stereotypes aside so that you are really providing quality care. Um, you know, we, we've historicized quite a bit, right? We know that our healthcare system is, is racist. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't matter that I come into a situation as somebody who is learned, you know, or well-educated. It doesn't matter how I'm dressed or not. Um, the fact that I can speak healthcare speak or whatever, um, the, the attitudes towards, um, black people, um, black people who are coming for, you know, treatment of pain, um, you know, is, is, is not the same as, as our white counterparts. Um, even in your, your story, people who have linguistic differences, right? The way that they're treated um, when they come into a healthcare situation is not on par with their white counterparts. So being able to respect the patient um, and meeting people where they are is, is an essential part of, of the care that we provide, but also the care that we receive. And, um, you know, I don't even know if that's, that's something you teach people, um, but it is definitely something that we, that needs to be a part of healthcare culture and that, that respect piece is often um, missing. Yeah, yeah. There's a flip side to that, right? Because um, I, I have had instances where I feel like I've gotten good care um, and the physician um, does respect me as a patient. But the problem is then they want to drop all the layman language. Mm. <laughs> and I'm kind of like, 
dude, I, I appreciate that you read my chart and recognize you are <laughs> speaking to another professional as somebody with advanced education, but this is a stressful situation. I'm not, I'm not here to diagnose myself or treat myself. I am coming to you as the expert. So we don't have to do this today. Like I'm, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm regular old auntie over here trying to figure out what the hell is going on. Yeah. Like when you're ripping my nail me. off, I don't need to be hearing about osteomyelitis and yeah. like what type of suture you're using. Um, like with, uh, yeah, it was funny when I was telling her that I was an OT and she was like, Oh, so then, you know, a lot about hands and probably what's going on with your finger bone right now. And I was like, no, I'm not that type of OT. <laughs> like, yes, there's probably those OTs out there who will do this, but then she like couldn't understand my type of practice, but that was a whole yeah. other world. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's like, you're in a state of trauma. Like, I don't, I don't need, I don't need doctors speak to me. Yeah, in, yeah we're not, we're not in a classroom. We're not writing a paper together. Like, this is not the situation to connect on that level. Like, mm -hmm. you are providing <laughs> care right now. I'm the care recipient. Like, let's, let's honor that relationship in this situation. Right. <laughs> and right. uh, talk to me in a way that I can get it through my trauma. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I think it's just, um, you know, it's important to respect that that history of both the person and our system and really know it and understand our role in it as practitioners and as advocates and sort of seeing ourselves in that full situation so that we can understand like the nuances like you like healthcare is not an assembly line and it can mm -hmm. never be an assembly line because we were all different people. We all bring different spaces and places and experiences to that work. And I mean, I don't, <laughs> we, we have to be able to bend and flex to the different people that come into our therapeutic process, as well as when we are going through that therapeutic process. Um, mm -hmm. It's just, I think something we often for, forget because a lot of our system is pushing people too hard and not giving them enough support and not giving them enough salary. Um, and mm. we, we end up just having people who can only function at an assembly line sort of mechanism because of where they're and how they're working. And it's really detrimental to the humanity of patients and to the, and to the people who are working as well. Yeah, man, you preached. <laughs> <laughs> Some people yes. used, used to tell me I should have been a preacher and I said, nope, not for me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you know, you. You definitely have preacher spirit. I'll say that. <laughs> yes. You, you laid that From down. From the valley to the mountain, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Somebody please put that on a t-shirt. But the Dr. Thoughts the gets mountain. the, get the proceeds though. Just remember <laughs> That's that. Right. Yeah. You, you heard it first here, but um, yeah. Yeah. So any, any other like last thoughts on, on this? I just think it's so important for us as OTs to constantly be reflecting on that experience from the other side. Um, I know that sometimes we don't have that experience of being the patient, of being the one navigating the healthcare system, but, you know, from especially our colleagues who are doing that, if they have disabilities or if they have chronic illnesses, to learn from that and to always be pulling on those experiences, because just this one night of an experience has drastically shifted how I understand my own role as a healthcare professional in the world. Mm -hmm. um, so mm -hmm. 
I think unpacking this story was really helpful. Um, and it's something that a, a tool that other healthcare professionals can do is unpack your own experiences and use those to inform your practice and, and understand how you can be considering those complexities and nuances as you do your work. So thanks, yeah. Kalia, for talking through this with me. <laughs> yes, yes, of, of course. What's your hourly rate? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll send you a bill. Okay, well, what percentage <laughs> is the health insurance paying? <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, now that we've experienced this, you already know what to expect. That's right. <laughs> well, everybody go out there, keep up the good fight in this healthcare system and keep advocating both politically and in your institutions for, for better care that takes into account the money, the power and the respect of healthcare. And, and we can all be better practitioners for it. All right. See you all next time. <laughs>